I love the work of Joe Bowler, Sunil, Dan, Dan Myers, DeMoss, and all of them, where they do create this idea of it's totally not a foreign language. It is absolutely a part of our DNA and doable. But as James Nottingham out of the UK would say, I need to provide a learning pit which is his phrase. And you can type that in and there's all kinds of- In today's episode, we had the privilege of sitting down with author, speaker, educator, Rick Wormelli. Rick is a true trailblazer in the field of education. He brought a wealth of wisdom and energy today to our conversation. In this engaging discussion, Rick delved into some thought-provoking ideas as usual that challenge conventional teaching practices in mathematics. He passionately emphasized why assigning a large number of problems might not be the most effective way to help students learn and why it's crucial to understand that the person doing the editing is the one who's truly engaging with the material. Rick also shared his insights on the power of intentional purpose and assignments, the importance of cultivating empathy for students new to math or new to a math concept, and the interconnectedness of pedagogy and math content. You know, furthermore, Rick introduced a bold notion today that teaching the same course year after year after year may not be the most effective approach for educators or for students. His unique perspective on this topic invites us to reconsider the dynamics of teaching and its impact on student outcomes. So prepare to be inspired and challenged as Rick Wormelli takes us on a journey of rethinking math education. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. So let's go. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are from MakeMathMoments.com. This is the only podcast that coaches you through a six-step plan to grow your mathematics program, whether it's at the classroom level or at the district level. And we do that by helping you cultivate and foster your mathematics program like strong, healthy, and balanced trees. So if you master the six parts of an effective math program, the impact of your program is going to grow and reach far and wide. Every week, you'll get the insight you need to stop feeling overwhelmed, gain back your confidence, and get back to enjoying the planning and facilitating of your mathematics program for the students or the educators that you serve. Let's dive right into the episode with Rick. Hey, hey there, Rick. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Last we spoke through email, you were out and about doing some traveling living life to its fullest. But now we've managed to get you sitting in your office that I recognize from some of your virtual sessions that you've done in the past. And we're super eager to share your voice with the Math Moment Maker community. How are you doing today? And where are you coming from? Tell us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you. Okay, we are going to be here for three or four hours, right? I can, <laughs> here we go. Here we go. We're ready, we're ready. Now, I'm coming to you live from the Washington, D.C. area and Virginia, Maryland as well. We're all kind of gathered there geographically. So central, mid-Atlantic, I guess. And I'm feeling great today. Thank you for asking. I hope you guys are doing well. I'm excited about the new school year and the possibilities this year that the previous three or four years did not afford. As people are kind of sort of maybe looking at normalcy and getting excited about teaching again, and particularly math instruction. Background, this is my 43rd year in education. 
but I had only like 25 years in the classroom and then partially in the classroom and after that. And then the majority of my time now is working with teachers in their rooms or at conferences or with leadership on a variety of topics. One being instruction and in very particular in math instruction, but looking at ethics and grading. Uh, use of metaphors and analogies in a math class or science class or coding or music class. They're used to strategically, not just left haphazardly. If I know you well enough, I can draw a connection between something you understand and what I'm teaching that's an abstraction in math. And suddenly you have a mini epiphany. You get it. And a lot of teachers leave that to chance. We can talk more about that if you'd like. Also summarization or how do you digest and process information, uh, practical cognitive science, differentiation and equity quite a bit. And the last thing I do a lot of lately is how do you have conversations on very difficult topics and maintain civil discourse and offer a model to students? Because certainly the United States Congress is not a good model for how you have civil discourse. <laughs> but, it's not um, that much better here, but maybe a little bit. I don't know. I've been I don't... following it. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. At any rate, so it's a wide variety of topics, math being one of the strength areas, but that's kind of where I'm coming from. Really started, did my student teaching in 1980 and did a whole year of that and have just never left. They'll kick me out one day, I'm sure. Yeah, no, we won't. No one's going to kick you out, Rick. Yeah, that's quite the list. I think you've got a lot of thinking going on right now, thinking about the different aspects that you just outlined. And I want to dig into as a bunch of that stuff today to get your thoughts on a few of those things and help our teachers, listeners right now, too. But before we got to get into the meat there, we've got to ask you the question that we ask every one of our guests. Okay. Being the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast, we always ask our guests to think back to a moment of their life. When we say math class, usually something from their history, something from child childhood pops into their memory and it stuck with you this whole time. And it could be a great memory. It could be a memory that influenced you. It could be a memory that negative influenced you to some degree. But what would you say, Rick, is when we say math class, what memory has stuck with you all this time about math? Well, portions of it, I assume are still okay. Maybe portions may not have aged well, but Donald Duck and Math Magic Land. <laughs> that is my go-to. Okay, you got to fill me in here. Yeah, that yeah. is How my awakening, get this episode baby? to 30 minutes, guys? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that there's going to be a big story here, and I can't wait oh, to hear Donald it. Duck <laughs> no, and Math Magic Land. This is the land at Disneyland? <laughs> this is a video that's available on YouTube today, but it's an ancient video. It was actually created in 1959. And when I was a kid in elementary school and middle school and elementary in the decade of the 60s and into early 70s, the recreation center at my school would show it on hot summer afternoons with you could eat lemons or oranges or they would serve pop up freezes of some sort. And you would sit there for half an hour and watch Donald Duck learn about mathematical principles in Donald Duck and Math Magic Land. The golden ratio, musical, there was a heck of a lot of jazz and the mathematics of jazz in there. There was a heck of a lot on the pool table and how you decide your shots with different angles. And you can literally make the ball go where you want if you understood the geometry of playing pool. And to this day, I cannot play pool without thinking of Donald Duck and Math Magic Land and what I learned as a seven-year-old in the 60s. And then the rec department showed it, and then the schools got a hold of it, and they started showing it. And to this day, when I have taught math instruction to elementary students, some middle school, I have used that. And then I've actually referenced it for some of the high school students with whom I work. 
as well. And sometimes they go online and look at it. But before the podcast, I knew that I was going to be asked this question. So I went and looked it up. And yes, it is wildly known. It's available on YouTube for free. But it is one of those things that I realized, oh, math is so much more than the calculations and figures. And when I was in fifth and sixth grade, I had a lot of friends who were not getting the math of fifth and sixth grade math. And I started helping them out. And eventually, the teachers at the time, for better or for worse, made me a lieutenant, an ambassador of mathematics. And I would take my little small study group into this side study room attached to our classroom, and I would proceed to reteach the lesson to them because they didn't get it in the main lesson. And that was probably planting the seeds of the future profession. And that was just so exciting. At the same time, I read about Digitopolis in the Phantom Toll Booth. And Wayside Stories from Wayside School, all these other things where math was incorporated into the fictional journey of the characters. I thought I read about dodecahedrons. How do you really know what infinity is and all these different things? And it just became this fascination. And at the same time, I was really intensely involved with Alfred Hitchcock's The Three Investigators, Murder Mysteries, uh, the Sherlock Holmes, and Two Minute Mysteries, and the idea of deduction and solving things, giving clues. And wow, did I come into my own when I found proofs in mathematics that I had to do like, oh, this is deductive and inductive at the same time. I can totally do the proof <laughs> and follow the logical outcome of this. And it just kind of fed my soul. So I think those elements in combination kind of were my math awakening. And then I never, I never lost the love. And to be able to work with somebody and their eyes light up and I go, oh, so that's just like, yes. Yes, that's just like, <laughs> and golly, there's nothing like it as a teacher. It creates your teacher mojo. It, you know, you find oxygen again. Rick, I got to say that's such an awesome memory. And it's like John and I were both, when you said it's on YouTube, we immediately went, we're in a shared Google Doc right now. And both of us pasted the link at the same time. Same exact <laughs> link. We're Good. like, oh, it's there. It's going to be in the show notes for everyone. But here's something that really... It hit me. So first of all, I mean, there was a couple feelings that I got. A couple emotions came over me when you shared that. First of all, I was like, how awesome that you have these memories. And it led to, it seems like probably helped to carve a bit of that path towards education for you. So how awesome is that? But then on the other hand, I don't want to negate that positivity when I flip to this side, because the part that I wonder about is, do you ever remember any experiences in the classroom that did anything remotely close to what those episodes, those shows, those experiences did. And it's great that they existed. But then on the other hand, I kind of look at that and go, do we still have to rely on a TV show to kind of bring out that excitement in math class? Thinking of all the amazing things, the, all the amazing thoughts that you had through those experiences. And yet I feel like we see, we work with districts all over North America and beyond. And we see a lot of the same things happening that are probably fairly similar to what was going on in your classrooms when you were a student. And it's like, if students don't have this kind of opportunity, like you had this sort of random opportunity on a hot summer day to go in there and have this routine that someone thought this would be a great show to show you, how come we don't have more kids going like, I remember being in fifth grade when blank. This opportunity, this epiphany happened for them. And we do get it sometimes on the show, but most often we get negative experiences from the classroom or the positive ones that come out are 
oftentimes not in the classroom. And that just kind of makes me sort of reflect on that. And I wonder for you, did that have any sort of influence on you as an educator when you got into the classroom? And I'm going to put myself out there as I have on the show before. When I came in, I did it the exact same way I was taught. I was one of the lucky mm, ones. Yeah. I was a lucky kid. I picked up on it, quote unquote. I followed the patterns and I mimicked and that got me through. And then that's what I replicated for a lot of kids for a long period of time. Did you find yourself like me coming in and kind of doing it the way everyone else did it and then maybe transitioning? Or did you come in and maybe right away you were inspired to do something different? What did that look and sound like for you when you entered into the teaching profession? Well, I might have been really fortunate. I got my training at Virginia Tech here in Virginia, in the Virginia area. We had some really good professors there. But one of the things that struck me, and actually, for lack of better language, I guess you just apologize for the vernacular, but frankly, pissed me off, <laughs> was I had a bunch of t people teaching me about how to teach math that didn't know their math. And I'm this 19-year-old sophomore going into these things. And I'm saying, no, that's a geometric progression. That is not a linear progression. And I was right. And I was able to prove it mathematically. And I'm, I'm saying, oh, my God, you need to know your stuff before you're teaching math. And you're teaching teachers how to teach math. Why would you do that sort of thing? Oh, this is why anything to the zero power is equal to one. This is vertex format versus standard. You've got those two reverse. I was able to engage with that. And I do remember very much in my schooling, having teachers who allowed me to debate topics using math in support of my argument rather than math for its own sake. And that was wonderful. It struck me that I'm very constructivist. So I need you to construct the meaning and figure out what's important in the equation, what's not important, what's extraneous as you do this. So I love the work of Joe Bowler, Sunil, Dan, Dan Myers, DeMoss, and all of them, where they do create this idea of it's totally not a foreign language. It is absolutely a part of our DNA and doable. But as James Nottingham out of the UK would say, I need to provide a learning pit, which is his phrase. And you can type that in and there's all kinds of stuff online about it, where you do really, given all these different tools and elements, you put together the meaning and I facilitate and coach that because my whole goal is getting you there, not me bestowing from on high and you're sitting there passively, you're no longer actively engaged. And then you see it more and more as one more hoop through which I have to jump, not a meaningful pursuit or something that lights me up as a human in our society today. So I think the moments in my classes as a child where I was able to do constructivism and constructive meaning carried forward and my anger or disappointment in my college professors and how they were preparing us to teach math made me even more urgent and more passionate about not making those mistakes when I first started teaching. So yes, I would assign 35 math problems and I'd say, you have to do 35 odds and because they weren't in the list in the back of the book. Right, yeah. right. And then three out of the five enrichment ones. And I realized within two or three years, that was an endurance test. They really weren't looking at the math. So I started assigning all the problems that were the answers were in the back of the book. And I say, compare your answer with the one in the back of the book. If I introduce this variable, how would your answer change and why would it change or why would it not change as a result of me changing this one element and, and think critically about that. And then I started doing things where instead of 35 math problems or the subset of that, if you're only doing odds, I would do seven math problems. But then what I would do is I'd put a dot or cartoon eyeballs near where it geographically where there was an issue. 
and you had to figure out where the mistake was. If I circled your mistakes, if I put vertical lines through your horizontal ones, because it was, should have been a positive four, not a negative four. If I rewrote something because you didn't use the simplest form or expression of it, then I was learning a lot, but the kids are learning nothing. So I realized that a math class, whoever's doing the editing of work is doing the majority of learning. So I switched it from me doing the editing of work or response to it to the students doing it, but I had to shorten the assignments because Pascal was the one who actually taught me this. I'm that old. Look at the color of my hair, <laughs> my white. But Pascal said, if I had more time, I would have written less. And I realized that less is more in a math class. If I assign fewer practice problems, but you have to analyze where the errors are and correct them yourself, you will own them and you will not make those errors down the road. But if I do it, it's passive and you continue to not be vigilant and attentive to those things that you've learned, you want to internalize it because I'm the one that fixed it, not you. And totally. I think that kind of really opened things up to much more effective instruction in the early to mid 80s when I started making those revisions to the way I taught. Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I want to bring that when you talk about effective instruction and then tie it back to what you had said about that experience you had when you were getting taught math and you realized that they didn't know the math. So Kyle and I talk with a lot of district leaders with the district partners that we have throughout the year. And a lot of times those leaders will ask about the professional development that they want to implement with their teachers. And they know that the content knowledge for say middle school or even elementary school teachers, and it, even we argue that high school teachers sometimes need a more of a conceptual understanding of mathematics, different models, different strategies to go about topics. So I guess my question, I want to hear your thoughts on this, is that do you think it's more important or where would you place the priority on does a teacher need to be an expert on mathematics for their topic? And do you do that first? And then we worry about effective teaching practices or is it better for a teacher to have effective teaching practices and then teach them the mathematics? Which one do you think is the priority to have to begin? Where do we start if we were going to craft our own PD program? I think you start with the chicken and not the egg. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I wrote that in my notes for this question, by the way. <laughs> chicken okay, and egg. Yeah, yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> we like to throw yeah. really tough yeah. ones at you. Yeah. There you yeah. go. Oh, no, that was just a little yoke. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if you laugh, you're just encouraging him. I, I I'm using it with my kids later. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm a new grandfather. So the grandfather jokes supersede old dad right. jokes. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. At any rate, one of the things I'm cautioning every teacher against, I had to caution myself against, is this over familiarity. It's so familiar and clear in my head. Why isn't it clear in your head? And I don't develop an empathy for first time eyes. And what we found in looking at research on empathy in math classes, teachers who score really high at empathy scales, those students tend to do better because I can see where the misconceptions are bubbling up inside you. And I can remind myself, oh, I am so overly familiar. I'm falsely assuming 
it's clear in their heads and I'm not double checking. And I need to turn that around and get there. In answer to your question, then you cannot effectively look at the array or repertoire of instructional strategies in mathematics without being intimate with the mathematics concepts themselves. And the more intimate you are, the more dexterous you are. You think with an agility right there in the moment, let alone in the pre-planning quiet. Okay, whenever that time is for a teacher, but the quiet moments when you get to plan late at night for tomorrow's lesson and you're barely a page ahead of the kids as you're learning something new, if it's a new field you're teaching, but they have to be happen simultaneously. So in other words, I can't do instructional strategies devoid of this math and vice versa. I can't do the math devoid of the strategies. Problem, ask teachers as I have done and say, look, what are 12 different ways to teach this? the FOIL method or something, or matrices or whatever it might be, or simply adding fractions, different denominators or units of measure. What are 12 different ways to teach that? And they'll say, well, there's like two or three. And I say, well, what are 15 different ways to assess that? Where you're just looking at evidence of it, not compliance that they took a test or did a certain format, but that they really understand the concepts and they're hard pressed. And they tend to say there aren't those ways. And then I realize those are people who are going to get very defensive, very threatened when I ask them, to teach challenging things to diverse students. And the diverse students have rights, let alone just the ethic of our enterprise, our profession. We have integrity that I teach everyone, not just the easy ones or the ones who know how to play the game of school. So it's beholden to me to have a wide repertoire where I get a challenging math concept to teach and I get challenging students. I'm like, no problem, bring it on. I'm fine, I can do this. And it again, feeds the intellect. I find, however, if you teach the same math course three or four years or more, there is a tendency to for creativity and intellect to atrophy unless you go out of your way to cultivate your creative or your intellectual mind. I've written articles on this and I do presentations on it and so on. And I think that's missing in a lot of folks. They're overly familiar. They're no longer empathetic because they're so familiar they can't see it from you know the other angles. And then they lack their creativity to think divergently, which is really what good mathematicians do. Right. It's one of the ultimate <laughs> things you do. And for example, I think you can be deductive, inductive at the exact same time. Whereas some people say, no, it's an orderly schematic. And if you're not comfortable with ambiguity, you're probably going to fry a lot of brain cells teaching math today because it'll be three steps forward, two steps back. Here's another example. When I work in high schools, I want to pour cold water over some of my colleagues' heads or the people with whom I'm tutoring. Wake up, come out of your coma, because they will say things like this to me. How can I possibly teach trig or just teach algebraic expressions, polynomials, whatever it is? They don't even know their math facts. And I pull out the first grade one, grade two, for those of you in Canada, uh, for your their curriculum. And let's say, look, algebraic concepts. So isolating for the variable. Multiplicative inverse, distributive property ideas, the, some of the basic things that go there. Look, they don't know the multiplication facts, but they're able but, to understand yeah. advanced concepts. I love it. Why are you limiting it to a linear mono progression or mono sequence when it is every lesson is a three dimensional design? It is not two dimensional. And suddenly these doors start opening and we're okay. And we can revisit why we entered into math instruction in the first place. But my class, do I ever have my kids memorize and just do basic rote stuff? Yes, so they can do the application. Like in my class, you have to memorize all your facts through the 20s. So when I taught elementary, middle, and high school, it wasn't just memorize through your 10s. 
you had to memorize through your 20s because there's so many problems where 17 squared is asked or 16 times 15. And so I want that immediately there. I wrote a whole article on why it's important to memorize stuff, even a world in which you can still look it up and use the TI-84, 96, 100,000, whatever version will be out you know, next year. Yeah. <laughs> and I know TI is faded, but anyway. But the idea that I can't work with stuff unless I have it in my mind with which to work. So I think they're synergistic. I'm not trying to wiggle out of the answer. No, no, I, <laughs> no, no, I think you, I, 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 I think you agree. It. Yeah. And I want to let you go where you wanted to go. But when John asked the original question about which one comes first, yeah. I had a funny feeling you were going to say it's like in <laughs> parallel. I mean, in a perfect world, in a perfect world, you at least know the content entering into this profession, right? But you can't think flexibly unless you have it. Exactly. Most school districts right now are assuming teachers have that content knowledge and not evolving, you're not adding to their repertoire of content knowledge at a conceptual level. And they're focusing all their attention on teaching practice and effective teaching strategies, but not making sure, hey, wait a minute, are my teachers well positioned enough to actually engage in those teaching strategies? I think they still have to be parallel today, even though it's like, oh, I have a degree in mathematics. So that means I don't have to worry about how to teach math, like yeah, or what to teach anymore. That's, yeah. that's what's going on for a lot of districts, I think, right now. To dimensionalize that, too, there are a lot of teachers and they tend to be more secondary level, but maybe there's certainly a significant amount of elementary primary where I say, can you tell me something about the modern understanding of the mind and how it learns cognitive science, something that you know from that, that you can apply in the mathematics class and show me that in your lesson design. And to me, your greatest single tool is your expertise in the human mind and how it learns. And they're very hard pressed. They're like, uh, can I get back to you next Friday after I talk to mentors or my union representative? Because they're feeling threatened. <laughs> that Rick guy's so not coming back to this place. Yeah, right, right, right. And so I'm like, no, 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 no. This should be something that just trickles out of your mouth instantly. Here's what we know about the mind in general for high school students. Here's what we know about for middle or whatever it might be. So here's what I choose to do to be developmentally responsive. And that eludes a lot of people because they don't have training. Or they don't keep up with it. Because one of the jokes in education is if you write a book on how the mind learns within one year, it's already obsolete before it even hits the shelf practically, because we're constantly learning new things. And so how do I, in teachers of mathematics, how do I get you to see the value and the meaningfulness and teaching smarter, not harder? So it's actually going to ultimately help you and de-stress you to keep up and how the mind learns. I remember when retrieval practice became so big and everybody's talking about it, making a stick, Brown, Redinger, and McDaniel, and other ones, everyone got excited about, oh, how are we now going to change to an interleaved versus a block practice yep. in mathematics and things like that? Well, I would expect teachers to keep up to speed on that. But if you're relying on what you learned 20 years ago or 30 years ago, or you've never had that background, now your window and the possibilities for how to be effective are so narrow, it's really stressing you out, demoralizing. And of course, it's not serving students. Holy smokes. Rick, you're blowing my mind here. And it all makes perfect sense, though. I feel like when I came out of my teaching pre-service here in Ontario, it was a one-year program. You do your degree and then you do one year. Now it's a two-year program. Sad reality is, is even though now it's a two-year program, the word on the street is that it hasn't doubled the amount of content knowledge, understanding of how the human brain works and how people learn. That's at least the anecdotal that we're hearing. But right idea, right idea. We want to give more. But I remember coming out 
and not knowing anything about, I'm sure I was in courses that taught me about learning, right? But I had my little math degree. Or maybe the history of learning, the foundations like Dewey and the progressivism, things like that, Bruner, Bandura, Piaget. You probably heard those fundamentals, but really, what do we know today? Keep going. And how to apply them. For me, it was definitely, we had a psychology of learning class and none of that resonated. Maybe I wasn't ready for it at the time, whatever that might be. But to your point, unless you are going above and beyond, we'll say, which what I heard you just say is that it shouldn't be above and beyond. We got to do this work Yeah, yeah. in order to know how the human brain works and learns. And John and I have done a lot of this work as well, which is what got us to do this podcast and do all of this work in mathematics was trying to get to the answer of how do we help students better understand math? There's going to be the, call it the 30% that are going to come to you and they're going to, whether you're there or not, whether you say this or not, they're going to be fine. They're going to figure it out and move along. But what about the other students? If it's 70%, if that's the number, I'm kind of using more of a science of reading statistic there. But ultimately at the end of the day, there is a lot of heavy lifting to be done. And the sad reality is I think that a lot of us are in a position in education where there isn't enough time in the day in order for someone to get those pieces unless they're willing to figure it out at other points in the day. And what I'm hearing you say, it's almost like a call to action. What are we going to do? I would argue the people listening to this podcast, we don't even have to share that message because they're listening to a podcast on their walk while they're doing right. the dishes, they're whatever. Already they're Indians. already yeah. digging in. But imagine yeah. how do we help more colleagues come into this world because I'll be honest and say, Rick, I didn't realize we were going to go where we went today because I was thinking Rick's going to help us out with assessment and evaluation. Oh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> we will. We will. But what I'm wondering from you is what would you say to those who are listening in order to, there's a lot of leaders that listen to this podcast, be it math coaches, be it principals, be it coordinators or directors. What would be your thought and how do you rally a group of educators who all mean well, and this is the one thing that's I think makes it really hard, is that everybody's doing the best that they can at the time. So how do we nudge them to kind of take that step towards, say, understanding how we learn or better understanding the content or the pedagogy? What would you say? I do think that we can always extend the benefit of the doubt and that they are doing the best they can given their perspective and tools. And that, again, those of us who are in leadership if for teachers, we've had such an experience, we can see all these possibilities they can't see because we can assimilate lots of things and see patterns that otherwise are unrecognizable. They don't perceive the pattern. I can walk into a classroom and tell what, teacher, what kind of teacher a teacher is within 10 minutes. I can really assert things. But teachers who are not into that, critical analysis of practice, things like that, they're like all over the place. How did you know the teacher was like that? Or the teacher had that policy or that policy? That comes from experience. So we have to understand that. And that's great. But that does mean you stick with it instead of teaching for four years and then you get out. There's more to it than that. But there's also this idea of let's sit down and be experiential. So I am now going to teach you a fairly esoteric math idea that's associated with gravitational waves that we've recently discovered. And we're going to go through all this stuff. And I teach it like I'm teaching a memoir. I mean, there are a lot of teachers who do lessons that are just a memoir. Here's how I learned it. And here's how I do it. So now, of course, because I told you that, you can do it. They're not realizing their success comes in the student understanding it, not in them proving that they understand it in front of children. 
And right. there are a lot of teachers who are convincing the class, look, I know what I'm doing. That's a good one. <laughs> and it becomes really clear that the student success is a very fragile focus, intermittent at best. And so I will say, how do you know you're successful? And if I hear them saying, well, I was able to kind of get through this and do all this stuff, like, oh, no, have yeah, you we completely got missed it. it? So how do we help students self-monitor rather than not? But when teachers experience that in a lesson, they begin to go, oh, now I'm seeing it. Because when you analyze somebody else's stuff, you are totally thinking about yourself. And then it moves into your internal editor. And you reference that when you're doing your own stuff. So I'll show videos of lessons that are not very successful or engaging and ones that are and say, what was the difference? How do you do that? What was the relationship between the teacher and the students as a collaborator? I do it with students. I don't do it to students, this math instruction. It is only with their collaboration that we can be successful in mathematics. And so there's that mutual ethos. I'm looking out for you as much as you're looking out for me as we're doing this together, which means if I make a mistake, I invite you to find that. And I don't deflect on it. I don't pass it off. I go, oh, thank you. Exactly. Wow. I'm, I'm so glad you're in my on my team here helping me forward so I can model how not to know and still handle it with respect and grace instead of, oh, no, it wasn't one and done. I got it or I didn't. And there's no in between, which is going to kill math for so many people. We don't want to do that. So I'm going to ask teachers to really think about the extent to which your whole focus in a lesson is about getting these different kids in whatever format they, they understand to be successful, not to you to get through that curriculum. And a reminder that it's what the kids carry forward after you've taught, not what you got through. So if your whole lesson, your whole focus is getting through material today, because if you don't, tomorrow is going to be a mess and you're going to have to rebuild and restructure, then I've said you've missed the entire point of teaching. And so now the a mindset as I design any activity in any part of the lesson is, well, how is this going to lead to long-term retention and versatility down the road? So today might be building capacity for the really important thing that we're going to do in four days rather than, oh, it's got to be today or nothing. And then we move on and we go lockstep through it. I'm hoping that, that experience of teachers receiving that and maybe even analyzing scenarios, hypotheticals, what would a line with modern pedagogy teacher do here who's sincerely interested in students being successful and, and appreciating and finding meaning in math, resonance in math, what would they do differently here than some other teachers? And when you sit in small groups and do that, when it's emotionally neutral, it's not urgent, like I have to figure it out right now, you think with such expanded clarity from what you can draw when it really happens in your class. That mindset, I think, is so important. I think it's overlooked. I'm so glad that you share that here on the podcast. And I think just thinking about that, how you're going into your lessons, I think that paired nicely with some of the things I think you're going to chat with us or share with us or teach us in the summit that's coming up in November in the 2023 Make Math Moments That Matters Summit. We're coming up November 17th, 18th, 19th. Rick is doing a session with us. And Rick's going to talk about assessment, some feedback. And students monitoring their own growth. Yeah, so that's like that part of it. So, Rick, give us a snapshot of what you're going to teach and then uh, what, say, a teacher is going to walk out from that session. Well, imagine if I stopped in your math classroom for like 10 minutes and I'm nodding, I'm walking around, I'm observing you. As I'm leaving, there's a little quiet moment, so I come over to you and I'm leaving to go on to some other duty. And I say, oh, thank you for letting me observe your class. I wonder if this afternoon I come back and give you some feedback. Would that be okay? What do you think most teachers feel? Ah, 
that? What did I do wrong? Can't you tell me now my imagination is going to run away with me by this afternoon? I'm going to be a nervous mess. And that's because we see feedback and critical analysis of one's work as something where I have to self-preserve. I have to protect my ego. I have to endure it rather than welcome it. And what we want to do is we want to shift that to basically little shop of horrors. Feed me, Seymour, feed me. <laughs> and the idea is that I need that feedback and it's a positive, not a threat to me. In fact, how do I grow unless I have critical analysis and I own my learning? And so in a math class, I want the heavy lifting to be done by the students, not me. So I might do a math quiz, a math test, a math project. And then I would give the students an empty item analysis chart. This item was looking at this. This item was looking at this. And I asked prompt questions at the top of the column. Hey, where were you with this? Uh, understand rational, irrational numbers. And whatever it happens to be that we're happy to be testing. Was it careless? Was it clueless? Sometimes they don't know the difference uh, between those two. And I have to point out to them, how do you monitor whether you get it? When the math teacher goes, all right, before we take the test, any questions? That is a total waste of planet Earth's oxygen. Totally. Because <laughs> the kids are not going to say anything. Or they, you're only going to get that one student who's asking know, right, you the exactly. super hard problem that nobody right. else in the class even got to. Right. How do I know when I do know? How do I know when I don't know? And then from that analysis, you create an action plan of learning, and I help facilitate and support that. But you own the learning. And this moves the student from agency to absolute solid efficacy, self-efficacy. They're empowered to do this stuff. And I own the math rather than make excuses for when I don't do well in the math. And it really helps the perfectionist. If I don't get like all these perfect, I'm a mess. I'm nothing. I don't know. No, no, that's not at all the humanity of math and the love and the joy that we can find in math. And I hate that math is treating you like that in your mind's eye. So we will give lots of techniques on how to help students self-monitor descriptive feedback that's actionable and to make feedback something that is sought. And some of the guiding principles, like really calling from Jim Knight's instructional coaching, the idea of, I am not going to declare or assign an attribute or a trait to what you did. I'm going to ask questions to get you to arrive at that discovery. And how do I become that coach rather than that didactic? Here's where I went wrong. Here's what you need to fix. Now shape up and learn it, memorize it for the next unit, which is not going to be creating any kind of love or resonance with mathematics. As soon as you started sharing that and you kind of painted that picture in the classroom and saying, I'll come back and I offer you feedback immediately who popped into my mind. I'm sure, John, you probably know as well. We had Jim Strachan come on the show and, and he's done some work around mentorship and mentoring yeah. for all. And his move is very similar to that, where it's all about you and what is your perception of what happened, right? Because I mean, ultimately I could give you mine, but- Right, no, because I could impose my narrative and perception on you, right? but that's not gonna help you learn. Totally, it might offend you, it might make you feel bad, it might hurt your ego, as you said. So I see some similarities there, which I think is fantastic. And I am so excited. I can't imagine, John, people who are listening to this episode right now going, I'm registered for the summit, but I don't know if going to see Rick's going to be a good idea for me. <laughs> I've got a funny feeling. It's not going to be very engaging or he speaks in so monotones. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little worried about the summit site. Oh, as soon wait. as this episode yeah. goes live, all I of a sudden a they're going to all go there and yeah. register yeah. for that <laughs> session. See, I'm a talking head. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And for those who can't see on video, I'm holding up a mannequin. Hey, that's a reason for people to go to YouTube because 
not only do we talk about Donald Duck and the mathematical, whatever the it was called, we'll land, have that yes. in there. But you'll also get to see not only Rick is the talking head, but uh, Rick's mannequin or whatever that was that we just... Halloween's coming up. I'm getting the, everything ready for the front yard. I love it. I love it. Rick, we could chat with you all day. We said we're going to try to keep it to 30 minutes. There you go. We blew it again, as usual because it's always so great to go down the educational rabbit hole with awesome people like yourself. We so appreciate all of your ideas that you bring to education, in particular around assessment and evaluation. But something interesting about assessment and evaluation that I've learned over the years is that ultimately all the other stuff is all connected. And you've oh, kind yeah. of modeled that for me today, right? So you've really helped people to see that when you go into that session with Rick at the summit, you're not just going to learn about a strategy for assessing or evaluating or how do you report or anything like that. You're going to learn about good teaching practice and you're going to learn about ensuring that we're doing everything we can to help every student go to the next place in their learning journey. So a lot of big takeaways here today. But Rick, if we had to ask you for one thing that you're hoping that the Math Moment Makers take away here from today's episode, what would you leave them with if they could only take one? Oh, that's just I know that's just not nice of you. More of a think of it like a big idea instead of big one of the ideas you're idea talking about. Step yeah, for them to yeah, think yeah. after this episode. To cultivate a large repertoire of response and not settle for, well, I'm not creative enough to follow through and do that. So I'm going to give up on the principle. Math instructional principles, the assessment grading principles, evaluation principles are worthy. And if you can't fathom the mechanics or logistics of it, that doesn't mean you give up on the principle. The idea is that you surround yourself with people who are provocateurs, who will make it compelling to do a deeper dive and explore it. And it does mean that we cultivate our own creative selves. And I don't leave that to chance or for my school district to do it. If I'm waiting for the school district or school division to do that, I'm not even treading water. I'm in charge of my own professional development. And so I have to constantly feed that. Otherwise, I'm going to become jaded and a little bit cynical about math instruction or about students today. And really that's more in my court. So I'd hope that they would embrace that and be open to those ideas. And then kind of part two of that is, am I so jaded or in my own head that I cannot see the way other people struggle with something or making connections and not appreciate that? For example, in Second City and improv, the golden rule is, yeah, and to take whatever they say and run with it rather than immediately dismiss it, which invokes ego and survival, and I just shut down. So the idea of how do I take students' ideas and run with it and make sure students clearly have a seat at the math instruction table rather than it's done to them, no, it's done with them. And their lives, their earned insights in mathematics have absolute significant play in today's instruction or this week's instruction rather than something just to be dismissed because it was all wrong and I'm gonna tell you the right way to go. So those two concepts working together, I think would be a lasting gift to think about for the next year or two. Amazing, amazing. Rick, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Where can folks go if they wanna reach out to you, they wanna ask you questions, what's the best place that they could go to? Well, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. No, no. Yeah, leave a note. Yeah, right. You can always go to rickwarmly.com. There's a way to email me there. Well, first on Twitter or X or whatever it's called a month from now. Yep. Um, <laughs> it would be Why? at Rick Warmly too. There's at Rick Warmly, but it was hacked. It, it's my old account, but I haven't used it in like six years. So anyway, 
at Rick Wormley too. And then my email is just Rick at rickwormley.onmicrosoft.com. And hopefully maybe you can post that on a website, but Rick at rickwormleyonmicrosoft.com. Perfect. We got all that and we'll include all of those on our show notes page. And again, thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to seeing your session at the summit come this November. Hey, thanks, John. And thanks, Kyle. It's been a real honor. And thank you for what you're doing for leadership in this, let alone the instructional practice and the benefit to students. Awesome. Thank you so much, Rick. And we hope you have an awesome, awesome rest of your day over at 1600 Pennsylvania. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Take care, Rick. We'll chat soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, my friends, what a great episode. It was awesome to finally have Rick on the podcast here today. And hey, you know, just around the corner, Rick's going to be sharing all kinds of awesome, awesome goodness around mathematics, teaching and pedagogy, but also around assessment and evaluation strategies, and really about students taking ownership of that learning. We can't wait at the virtual summit, November 17th, 18th and 19th, 2023. If you have not registered yet, you can do so over at summit.makemathmoments.com, and it is free to attend for the weekend. We can't wait. But before we say goodbye on the episode here today, John, I don't know about you. When I think about that math program tree, uh, something that resonated while I think we took a tour around many different parts of the six parts of our tree, the one that really resonated happened near the end of the episode when Rick was talking about teachers taking ownership of their own professional learning over their own professional development, the limbs of the tree, getting that structure in place. And I think his call to action was, listen, if you're waiting, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, if you're going to wait for your district or your division or your organization to do that work for you, you're going to be waiting a long time because there's too much for us to do. And hey, One thing I do know is that people who listen to this podcast have really strong limbs to their math program tree because that's what you're doing right now when you listen each and every week and when you attend to the summit coming up here in November, that's you strengthening that part of the mathematics program tree. Yeah. You mentioned two other parts that I thought were, you know, interconnected. And when I asked him that question about what comes first, focusing on content, and strengthening your conceptual understanding of the content or on teacher pedagogy, right? Basically, should we focus on as a district, if I was in trying to make a professional development program, which is the limbs, should I focus on the roots or should I focus on the branches, which is our strategies, our teacher moves, getting those in the right hands? And he came up with what I think most people would come up with is they got to do them at the same time. You got to go parallel. And I think we often focus on the branches over the roots and forget about some of those roots. So I'm glad that he said, you got to do this in parallel. So focusing on the roots of the tree, the content knowledge and the pedagogy at the same time is a must if you're going to have an effective math program. So, hey, folks, we want to thank you for listening today to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. And if you have not yet subscribed, please hit subscribe. It's our only ask right here. Hit subscribe. And if you could, a five-star review as well. That helps people find the show. It helps other teachers who are looking for strengthening their limbs of their tree 
And we can all make a difference if we all work together and share the podcast. I love it. Friends, links, resources, transcripts, and all kinds of other goodies, including links to those YouTube videos that Rick shared with us here today, can be found over at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 256. That's right. We are at episode 256, and you can get those show notes on the show notes page. Friends, until next time. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And a high five for you. How can you take your district math program to the next level? Take the Make Math Moments 12-minute assessment and it will reveal what is going right with your district math program and what needs work. At Make Math Moments, we believe that an effective mathematics program should be developed like a strong, healthy, and balanced tree. The trunk represents leadership. Without strong and capable leaders, nobody knows the vision for the district, why it's important, or how to make the vision a reality. The roots of the tree represent mathematics content knowledge and what it means to be mathematically proficient. If your district math program doesn't consist of educators with deep mathematical content knowledge and promote instruction that develops all five strands of mathematical proficiency, the tree will not get necessary water and nutrients to thrive. Like a tree requires soil, water, and sunlight, your district mathematics program requires a productive educator mindset and the belief that all students can achieve at high levels. If this mindset and belief isn't clear to all students of all cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic experiences, and learner profiles, your mathematics program struggles to move forward. Your professional learning team or your professional development structure is represented by the limbs of the tree. If your professional learning team isn't inviting your teachers of mathematics into a meaningful story, you will not be able to support the work over the long term and create momentum. The branches of your tree represent the development of educator pedagogical content knowledge, including effective teaching and equity-based teaching practices. If you're spending valuable professional learning time on too many things that don't make an impact, the tree's canopy will get heavy and begin to sag, hindering growth. The final section is the leaves. The leaves represent resources, tools, and classroom environment. If a mathematics program doesn't have the necessary resources to do the work, the tree will starve, wilt, and eventually die. Are the six parts of your district mathematics program developing perfectly? Does your tree look like this or this? Our free assessment will help you grow a strong, healthy, and balanced mathematics program that works for all students in your district. Take the assessment and start growing your mathematics program today. And to take that assessment, head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash grow. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash grow. 
And uh, when you know how to strengthen those six parts of an effective math program, you're going to create a program that grows strong and wide.